0: Chapter Nineteen, The Threshing Floor "'What do you want?' Melody demanded as bravely as possible, her voice tremulous with fear. "'We want your money, sweetie,' one of them said. "'And maybe we want something more, too,' a bigger one announced with a grin. "'You are about the prettiest bloody organ grinder I've ever seen. "'It's obvious you're not from around here, "'and you don't didn't know you had to pay us in order to play in our park. "'But you do see.' I didn't know that. I honestly didn't, Melody, said quickly, terrified. I can pay. How much do you want? I'll pay you. Just please don't hurt me. Oh, you'll bloody pay, Missy. But you messed up, and you gotta pay it all, or we're gonna bust up your little fiddle and have something out of fun with you. So give it over now, he shouted. Melody jumped and dug handfuls of bills from the pockets of her dress. She was about to hand them over when, upon sudden impulse, she tossed them into the air. The bill scattered in the light evening breeze. Her attackers cursed and dove after the substantial quantity of fluttering money. Melody turned instantly and ran in the opposite direction. Hey, someone shouted. She's getting away. Scooter, Devin, catch the winch. We ain't done with her, he ordered. Instantly, two of them sprang after her. One glance over her shoulder told her they were significantly faster than she, and her heart fell. She raced towards the nearest intersection where she could see cars passing in the approaching dusk. She knew she could not possibly beat them there. A mere two paces separated them when a side door in one of the buildings opened and an older gentleman stepped backwards into the street. "Good night, Melvin,' he called into the building and pulled the door closed with a bang. He turned just in time to catch her in his arms. She nearly knocked him over, but he spun around nimbly and kept them both standing. As he spun around, his cane flew into the air and came down hard on the right shoulder of one of her pursuers. The action was so sudden, it appeared an accident.' The young thug fell to the ground, groaning, clutching his shoulder. Oh, so sorry, he exclaimed, bending over the young man on the ground. I was in such a dither to have this handsome young lady crash into me that I'm afraid I've dashed you with my cane. Are you all right? he asked earnestly. The ruffian, still standing, took a dancing step toward him, his hands punctuating the air in jabs of anger. Hey, old man, you better walk out of the way from this. uh, What the bloody..." he cursed. His curse was cut off when the old man's cane flashed out and cracked loudly against his left knee. The street thug crumpled to the cobblestones with a yelp. I'm so sorry, I'm just mortified. It seems my cane doesn't like you. Perhaps you'd best leave, so my cane doesn't express its unhappiness with you any further, "Hm," He said with his voice of perfect calmness. With the sudden appearance of this unexpected help, Melody's fear had turned from fear for herself to fear for the old gentleman. However, upon seeing his composure and the speed and precision with which he was able to express his cane, its dislike for her assailants, she grew calmer. "'Let's leave these gentlemen to nurse their wounds, shall we?' he said casually to her. He took her elbow, and they walked slowly away, as if taking a stroll to enjoy the cool of the evening. He did not look back, but merely chatted chatted (laughs) amiably about the weather until they reached the intersection and turned toward her hotel.' I thought I suggested you not stay in the park after seven, he said as pleasantly as he had discussed the weather. It wasn't until that moment that she had recognized him as the same gentleman who had first asked her to play Mozart in the park. He was dressed differently tonight and wearing a hat. It's you, Melody said in amazement, looping her arm a little tighter around his. You didn't recognize me? I'm abashed, he winked, then chuckled happily. You do remember my instructions, he asked. "'I'm sorry. I guess I got greedy and stayed longer. I'm so sorry,' she replied contritely, "'almost the same as she might have if it had been her father. "'Well, no harm done, except you lost all your money. I see you did retain your instrument,' he noted happily, indicating the violin case still securely tucked under her arm. "'Yes, I'm very lucky to have not lost it. I really have no other—' "'She stopped, embarrassed to admit to him that it was her only hope for survival.' "'You do play so very well,' the mysterious gentleman said cheerfully, "'and they stopped at the bottom of the steps to her hotel. "'There you are, my dear. Now, if you'd like, "'there's another park exactly four blocks east of here. "'I suggest you perform there tomorrow, "'and then come back here the following day. "'Follow that pattern, and don't get too greedy, and all will be well. "'Are you quite able to make it to your room?' "'I am. I'm truly indebted to you, sir,' she paused, "'cocking her head to one side, partly in apology, yet also in interest.' I don't even know your name i'm melody melody mckelvaney she offered her hand which he took in a warm sure grip she was surprised to find his hand so strong and steady it seemed inappropriate to his age and heightened her curiosity regarding him his smile was warm his voice cheery melody what a beautiful fitting name for one who plays so beautifully and who is so beautiful as well i am thermally charmed to meet you well, Melody, I bid you a good evening, he said. Lifting his bullet from his head, he nodded formally and turned back the direction they had come. Good evening and thanks again, she called to him. Without turning around, he raised his cane in the air and twirled it slightly in response. It was almost as if he were saying, no big deal." It made her chuckle. It wasn't until she was safely inside her room that Melody realized he had not told her his name. The old gentleman met her each morning, regardless of which park she played in. After four days, she had sufficient money to move on. Her most pressing need was to find her sister. She still had no idea how to accomplish that. Princess went into labor late the afternoon of July 3rd, 1977. They rushed to the hospital in Palmer, a short 30-minute drive away. They were admitted to the maternity ward, checked in, and assigned a room in a matter of minutes. Princess changed into her gown and settled in for a long, frustrating wait. Sam's mother arrived minutes later and walked past Sam with a little more than a concerned smile. She placed her hand on her daughter-in-law's forehead, smiled at her in a knowing way, and was thereafter in charge. Even the nurses bowed to her authority. Sam's wife held onto his wife's other hand and spooned chunks of ice into her mouth. It was the extent of his duties. In a way, he was glad for the calm confidence his mother brought into the room. He knew, he certainly knew, Princess appreciated it. Beneath his wife's calm exterior, she was terrified. In another way, it was... A w- in another way, in a way too instinctual to even understand, he resented it. This was his baby being born, his night of joy and fear, wonder of wonders, and he was reduced to spooning ice as if they had suddenly become a moron, barely able to do anything more complicated. It was almost as if he was the criminal who had caused his beloved wife this pain in her life, and he was not to be trusted with anything more important lest he mess that up too. To his astonishment, the more intense the labor became, the more his beloved cried out in pain through clenched teeth, the more he felt isolated from the only woman he had ever loved. It was as if the very process of birth climaxed in the irony of rejection of the poor fool who had contributed to the pregnancy. But Sam wanted with all his heart to be there and knew his feelings were childish, no matter how many millennia men had been feeling them. Every time she became paralyzed and plain and then fell back on her bed in sweaty exhaustion, he felt as if another thread was being torn from his heart. The only thing that kept tears from coursing down his cheeks, his own cheeks, was the odd need he felt to present a courageous face. Time became a blur of princess's pain his tangled emotions and ice cubes when he finally realized something was wrong he was the last one in the room to comprehend it the clock on the wall said 802 a.m princess had been in hard labor for 16 hours yet the baby was not ready to be born the heart monitor on the baby showed it was in distress doctors began coming through the door with increasing frequency then huddling outside to consult one another finally a woman in a white coat walked through the door and approached princess's bed Sam stood as she entered. Somehow, everyone knew this was a pivotal moment, and this new woman was here for something important. Princess, Mr. Mahoy, my name is Dr. Sally Green, she said in a conversational tone. Before the next contraction begins, I need to talk to you. Princess pushed a pillow behind her head so that she sat up a little more upright. Her face was ash and her hair soaked with sweat. Her hand trembled as she shook the doctor's hand. What's going to happen was her only question to the doctor you are not progressing as expected the baby should have been born by now both you and the baby have reached a critical stage you both may be in shock i have consulted with your attending physician and we feel that it is time to deliver your baby by cesarean do you know what that means yes princess replied calmly though sam thought there was an increase of fear in her eyes i know what a cesarean operation is do you know how to do them I am an obstetric surgeon. I have performed many cesareans. There is nothing for you to worry about. The hospital is equipped for the operation, and I am ready to perform it. All I need is your consent, and we will begin. You will be given anesthesia. You will wake up in what will seem like minutes later, and it will all be over. That sounds wonderful, Princess said weakly. Good. Let's begin, then, Dr. Green said as she turned to give instructions to the other two nurses standing behind her. No, Princess said emphatically. The room immediately fell into heavy silence. Excuse me? What did you say? Dr. Green asked in a shocked tone. I said no. But, Mrs. Mahoy, if we don't do this procedure, I cannot guarantee your baby's safety. I think it is essential for your own welfare as well. I'm sure it is, Princess replied wearily. Then why do you object to the procedure? I don't object to the procedure, Princess began, but her reply was cut off by an onslaught of tremendous labor pain. She doubled over, then relaxed and puffed through her teeth. The contraction lasted nearly two minutes, which seemed to all present like two eternities. Please continue to explain your objection, Dr. Green urged as soon as Princess fell back into the sweaty sheets. I don't object to the procedure, I object to you doing it, Princess replied, her voice small but determined. I am the only qualified surgeon in this hospital. It's a small hospital and there is no one else, I don't understand. I object on the grounds that you perform elective abortions. I don't want the same hands who take life from babies to give life to my baby. I don't mean to be rude, but I am not willing to have you operate on me or my baby. Dr. Green walked up to the side of the bed and leaned over until she and Princess were eye to eye. If I don't operate, I believe you and your baby will die. I am sorry you object to my abortion practice. In my opinion, it is immaterial. You don't have time to debate the moral issues surrounding abortions. You and your baby don't have any time left. "'I suggest you set aside your prejudice and let me help you. Do you understand?' "'Princess did not blink an eye as she replied. "'It's you who does not understand, Dr. Green. "'This baby inside me is no more precious than any of the hundreds you have killed in the pursuit of making money. "'If I let you deliver this baby, you will walk out feeling justified in your heart because you saved one. "'Because of that, you will go on to kill more, perhaps hundreds of thousands more. "'Don't you see? I can't let my baby's life grant your justification for killing others.' If my baby's death will save a thousand other little babies, then it's a small price. Sam was nearly beside himself with panic and pushed himself between the doctor and his wife. His first impulse was to beg her to reconsider, to let the doctor help, not to sacrifice herself in a battle she could not win. Her objections were stilled when he saw the calm determination in her eyes. Anything he might have said was swept away as another contraction gripped her. I regret your decision. If I had time, I would seek a judge's order to force you to let me operate, but there is no time. I will remain in the hospital for a time if you change your mind, Dr. Green said, and she turned to leave. Princess spoke through teeth clamped tight in pain. Her voice was nearly impossible to understand, yet the message was heard very clear by the doctor. Perhaps in a short time I will meet our eternal judge personally. The idea brings me peace. One of these days you will meet him too, and it terrifies me for you. Her words brought the doctor to an abrupt halt. She stood there for the briefest time in a frozen in mid-stride. Just as suddenly, she lifted her chin and left the room. As soon as she was gone, everyone began speaking at once. Sam, his mom, the nurses all began pleading with Princess. She simply ignored them. A look of ashen calm on her face. One of the nurses began weeping and rushed out of the room. Another wiped Princess's forehead gently, then walked slowly from the room. I'll be right back, Sam whispered to Princess, who seemed not to hear and hurried out of the room. He found a payphone and made a dozen calls. His request was the same every time. They began arriving only a few minutes later. About the third person to enter his room was his father, Jim Hoy. Others came, many others. Less than thirty minutes after his first call, almost a dozen priesthood holders surrounded Princess's bed. Sam was moved upon to ask his father to be the voice of the blessing. Princess smiled as they placed their hands upon her and upon one another until they were all joined in the power of the priesthood. Jim began to whisper, Princess, beloved daughter of God, we, the elders of Israel, combined our faith in the name of the Holy Messiah, and by the power of the Melchizedek priesthood we bless you with this one great blessing. You and your babies will survive this ordeal, and all will be as it should be. I seal this blessing upon you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A chorus of amens was uh, interrupted by the abrupt opening of the door to the small room. Dr. Green scuttled into the room with another doctor and towed by the sleeve. She plowed through the press of the priesthood holders until she stood beside the bed. This is Dr. Green, my husband. He is a pediatric physician and has performed many delicate operations. He has never done an abortion and is philosophically opposed to them. He has assisted me in many cesareans and has agreed to do it while I direct his every move. I will stand back and assist only. Will that satisfy your objection? She sounded breathless, angry, and frustrated all at once. Her husband looked as if he had just been abducted by aliens. A collective sigh of relief went up from the overfilled room. No, Princess replied breathlessly. Why not? the woman demanded angrily. I won't be doing the operation, just assisting. Because your soul is still in jeopardy, you learn nothing. You still feel vindicated, and you will still perform abortions. Nothing has changed. I can't stand here and let you and your baby die. "'Babies,' Sam's father corrected. "'What?' at least four voices asked simultaneously. "'I said there is more than one baby at risk. "'Babies. She is carrying twins.' "'How could you know that?' "'I learned it in the blessing. "'Twins,' he said with absolute surety. "'Dr. Green took a look, had a look of panic on her face. "'If that's true, it's even worse. "'I couldn't live with myself. "'If I let you and your babies die, it isn't right.' "'Why are my babies any different?' Women who opt for an abortion choose their baby's death. I choose the same for my own reasons. It's the same thing. It isn't the same, Dr. Green objected loudly. What are you doing isn't right. Princess's voice was breathing, was breathy, barely a whisper. Explain it to me. Why isn't it right? Because your babies have a right to. She stopped short. They have a right to live, Princess said. I know they do, and I want that for them. But so do thousands of others you will kill in your practice. Don't you see they all have a right to live? This is not the right time for philosophy, Dr. Green shouted. You have very little time left. I have an eternity left. It's you who are out of time. Tears began to spill down the doctor's cheek. I don't want to be responsible for your death. I couldn't live with myself. I don't want to be responsible for the death of countless more. I couldn't live with myself, Princess replied, her strength gone. Another contraction gripped her, but she was too weak to deal with it and simply laid back, her eyes rolling up into her head. She had now been in labor nearly 20 hours. I will make you a deal, the doctor said loudly, hoping to get through to Princess. Princess replied without opening her eyes. You must make it with God. I will know when it's enough. The doctor pushed herself away from the bread in frustration, spun around and walked toward the door, plowing into people with every step. She turned and returned to the bed in the same manner. Okay, she said. Whatever your deal is, it's not enough, Princess replied after a moment. The doctor threw up her hands and repeated her assault on those in the room with greater energy. She stopped at the far side of the room and placed her head in her hands. Everyone waited with pounding hearts, all knew, including Dr. Green, that this was the final time she could make the arrangements with God. There was no more time for Princess and her babies. Finally, she walked slowly back to Princess's bed. Time seemed to stand still as if hours had passed in terrible waiting. Princess, she asked quietly, is it enough? Princess remained quiet, almost as if she had not heard. After a long moment, she slowly moved her lips. It's enough. They formed almost without a sound. Dr. Green came to life and began ordering people like a war general. In less than two minutes, Princess was under anesthesia and being prepped for the operation. The last thing Dr. Green said to Sam as, he, as she bolted past him was, I'm afraid we've waited too long. Before the double door slammed behind her, she heard him say, God will guide her. She will live. The doctor stopped and turned back toward him. She nodded before disappearing beyond. When he had said it, he knew it with absolute assurity. As soon as the doctor disappeared, doubt began to assail him. Saturday morning, Melody's kindly old friend stood and listened to her entire morning concert. Afterwards, he gave her ten pounds, roughly thirty U.S. dollars. As people began to drift away, he remained. It pleased her, for over the last few days she had begun to realize how much she owed him. She wanted to thank him and also to pepper him with questions. She added in her mind to loop her arm around his and not release him until he had satisfied her curiosity. She was just brain enough to do it. Beautiful concert, Melody, he said with his light, continental accent. I'm pleased you enjoyed it. Would you have time to walk me to my hotel? Delighted, my dear, he replied. There's something I'd like to ask you. I have a question or two for you, too, she admitted, feeling smug that her plans were coming to pass so easily. The old gentleman's face was kind as he asked. Why are you still here in Swansea? Don't you have sufficient funds to complete your journey? She found it a bit odd, but an insightful question. Actually, thanks to you, I have more than enough, and I'm still here, because I don't know where my sister lives. She's in England somewhere, but she's moved recently, and I don't know her address. I don't even know what city she's in. Why did she move without informing you? he asked congenially. Melody debated whether to give him the simple answer or the long version. There was a lot of prejudice against Marcia's new religion, and she didn't want to offend or alienate her new friend by mentioning it. She just joined a new church, and she moved to be nearer to the chapel. I had her new address at one time, but I left home rather suddenly and didn't think to pick up the paper. I can't remember what city it was. England has so many oddly named cities. It does indeed. Which church did you say she joined? I didn't she said, and then added almost apologetically. It was the Mormon church. Truly? I may know someone who can help. As a matter of fact, they're right here, he said, pointing across the park toward a small gathering of people. It was so common for people to cluster around a performer or actor that Melody rarely paid much attention to little gatherings. She turned her attention to the group he indicated and saw a young man in a business suit and a small black derby standing on a box speaking. It seemed like something... "'It seemed that someone in the audience was giving him a hard time. "'Who are they?' she asked. "'Why, they're Mormon missionaries,' he said, "'in a tone implying everyone on earth knew who they were.' "'She gave him a remonstrative glance, "'and he hunched his shoulders as if she really should have known. "'She gathered up her meager possessions and walked toward the gathering. "'She turned to ask her friend another question, but he was no longer near. "'She could see his gray head bobbing slowly away in the distance.' She thought it odd that he had not even said goodbye. "'I don't know how many wives Brigham Young had,' one of the missionaries was saying in an exasperated tone. "'How can you be a missionary for the Mormon Church and not know?' the heckler wanted to know. "'Tell you what,' the young man said in a heavy American accent. "'When I get to heaven, I'll ask him.' "'He's not in heaven,' the heckler called back. This brought a roar of laughter from the crowd. "'Then you ask him,' the missionary shot back. This brought an even greater roar of laughter. The heckler lost interest and left the group. After that, the missionaries delivered a message to the crowd that Melody found uplifting. It was, in fact, her first exposure to LDS doctrine. In the years since meeting Sam on the train, she had either not had the opportunity or had not taken advantage of the ones that she had had to learn more. The crowd was dispersed and the two missionaries were just standing or or turning to leave when Melody interrupted him. Excuse me, she said shyly. They both turned toward her. They were slightly older than she, and about 19 or 20, she guessed. One of them was tall and quite good-looking. The short one was freckle-faced and red-haired. He seemed to be their spokesman and smiled up at her. "'Can we help you?' "'I don't know,' she replied. "'Honestly. I'm looking for my sister, who just joined your church.' "'What's her name?' she asked. "'Marcia McElvaney. Is she in the area?' "'I don't know what city she lives in.' "'Well, that makes it harder,' he said soberly. "'It's a big mission.' I guess it's a long shot, she said sadly. She's recently from Rhodesia, Africa, she added, hoping it would make a difference, and she plays the violin. Elder, the taller one said, do you suppose that that the young woman President Farnsworthy spoke of at the last Zone Conference? Wasn't there a lady from Africa who played the violin? Hey, I think he did say she was from Africa. It's worth checking into. Miss, if we can find a payphone, I can call President and see if that girl is your sister. What do you think? I'd be ever so grateful, please. Great, said the freckle-faced elder, sticking his hand toward her enthusiastically. I'm Elder Johnson, and this is my companion, Elder Fleur. We're both from America. Melody shook both her hands with a sense of amusement, mingled with gratitude. They were unusually helpful, as sincere as the Pope, and certainly seemed harmless. I'm pleased to meet you both. There's a post office a short distance from here, Elder Johnson suggested. We can find a phone there if we hurry we will probably catch our missing president still in his office thank you she said walking in stride beside elder johnson as they hurried toward the middle of town the post office turned out to be nearly a quarter mile away her legs were aching from trying to keep up with them as by the time they arrived melody talked to president farnsworthy and they decided the woman in question probably was her sister however president farnsworthy had no idea where she actually lived he promised to find out. He would call the missionaries, and they would deliver the message to her. President Farnsworthy assured her that she would leave her sister's address sometime soon, possibly even tomorrow. The missionaries were kind enough to escort her the considerable distance back to her hotel. During the whole journey, they talked excitedly about someone named Smith, who had seen an angel and who had been given a golden book. They talked with her so, with so much animation in their thick accents that Melody had difficulty understanding their speech, and soon found herself lost. She was quite unsure what they were talking about, except that they believed it with all their hearts. She made a shallow connection between the book Sam had given her father and the gold book from the angel. Melody had never read the book, since Marcia had taken it with her when she left England. If she had not, it would now be in the possession of the Rhodesian rebel army. It took most of the week for the missionaries to deliver her sister's address. Each evening they met with her in the park and escorted her to her hotel. During their walks, they talked enthusiastically about varied gospel topics. At first, Melody only tolerated it because they were helping her find her sister. After a time, she began to enjoy these brief talks and looked forward to them. The odd thing was that since the missionaries had begun escorting her home, she had not seen her friend, the older gentleman, without a name. Saturday, she played at the park from noon to four. By now, she had a small following of people who regularly came to the park to hear her play. It was rare for one of such extraordinary talent to be a street musician, and her impromptu concerts drew fairly large crowds. She found that she collected so much money in a four-hour concert that she could not safely carry it home for fear of being robbed. After several hours, she closed her violin case and refused further gifts. The missionary showed up around three and politely worked their way through the crowd until they were nearly in front. They watched her closely and closed their eyes in appreciation when she played especially beautiful passages. Melody decided to give the two elders a treat and searched through her memory to find some music they might enjoy. She remembered a hymn her sister had played over and over after joining the Mormon church. It seemed perfect. Waiting for the applause to die down, Melody lowered her violin, thinking she was through, A collective sigh of disappointment drifted across the gathering. I have one more piece to play today. It's a church hymn, a song especially for my two friends. I hope you enjoy it. Melody raised her bow, paused, and brought it down in a long, minor strain that seemed to weep with anguish. Slowly, with tender care, she played the music. She glanced up and saw tears in the eyes of both missionaries. She did not know the words, but they did. And they began to sing quietly at first, and then with gusto. Elder Flora had a rich baritone voice. It rose up in impassioned strains, and she felt the hair rising on her arms as a thrill of spiritual yearning passed through her, such as she had never felt before. It was as if her soul had suddenly discovered it was emaciated from long, lifelong starvation, and had just tasted its first sip of the very nectar of the gods. "'Come, come ye saints.' No toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Though hard to you this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. Gird up your loins, fresh courage take, our God will never us forsake. As soon as we'll have this tale to tell, all is well, all is well. The music died in the autumn breeze, and melody lowered her bow to appreciative applause. She had sat in grand halls and heard the world's finest voices. She had played in orchestras as virtuoso tenors thrilled through thousands. But she had never heard anything like this. This young missionary's voice wasn't trained. She knew he hadn't sat at the feet of the master teacher and practiced scales endlessly until his voice was flawless. She doubted he had sung for more than a hundred people in any one room. Yet, She had never heard someone sing with more joy and passion. His voice had reached far beyond the furthest ears in the large concert hall. It had reached deep within the soul of all who heard. It was the second time simple music had touched her soul at its greatest depth. The first time was on the train in Africa. The parallel between then and now was inescapable. Both times the music had unexpectedly come from a young Mormon missionary. People wandered away reluctantly. "'Melody laid her violin atop the pile of bills "'and succeeded in closing it, "'only after stuffing several handfuls into her pockets. "'Elder Fleur waited until she looked up before speaking. "'His voice was husky with emotion. "'Thanks, Sister McIlvaney,' he said, "'mispronouncing her name slightly. "'You're welcome, Elder.' "'It tickled her that they insisted on calling her sister. "'It made her feel like a nun from a convent.' Yet nothing she could say would dissuade them. She had finally given up. You were right, he continued. It's one of my favorite songs. I hope you don't mind that I sing it. I didn't mean to butt in, but it just welled up in my throat and I either had to sing or burst, he explained. Melody placed a slender hand on his arm. I loved that you sang, she assured him. I have to say that you have a beautiful voice. Elder Fleur seemed quite abashed by the idea. Oh gosh, I don't know. I just love to sing. "'I know I can make a lot of noise, but that's about it.' "'Don't be so modest,' she admonished happily. "'You do have a beautiful voice. "'Even without training, you caused the hair on my hair to rise on my arms.' "'I always thought that was a bad thing,' he replied with wide eyes. "'No,' she laughed. "'No, what I mean is you touched my heart. "'I think what touched me was how much you love that song "'more than how fine your voice is.' "'Sister McIlvaney,' he replied earnestly, "'It isn't that I love that song.' "'What, then?' she asked, genuinely perplexed. "'It's that I love the Lord. "'This song, Come, causes all my hope and faith "'to come in great bursts of happiness. "'That's what you're hearing, not my appreciation for a tune, "'but my love for all that it stands for.' "'His words entered her heart with power. "'I stand corrected,' Melody said, "'and bowed toward him from the waist. "'When she arose, she could see "'he was genuinely perplexed by her response.' She laughed. Her voice was unlike sleigh bells on a windless winter's eve. She turned to walk and beckoned them to join her. She stepped between him, handed her violin to Elder Johnson, and took each by the elbow. As much as I know about music, she told them, you have added a dimension I never realized before. What's that? they almost asked in unison. Great music expresses great passion. I've always known this. What you taught me is that the nearer the passion of the performer mirrors the passion of the composer the greater and the more life-altering a performance becomes i think we heard you sing just as the composer might have sung had he been here what a wonderful thought elder replied after another few steps he turned to look at her i was just puzzled about why you bowed to me melody stopped walking both young missionaries stopped turning to face her to me music is everything she explained it is the food I drink, the air I breathe. Music comforts me, feeds me, and gives my soul wings. Yet I have never, never understood what you just revealed to me. What you taught me would be somewhat analogous to when one of your investigators accepts what you teach them. I bowed because it's the way that I was taught as a child to acknowledge when something, when, when someone has given me a great gift. Both missionaries stared at her with wide eyes. Then, as if they had rehearsed it as many times, they both bowed to her. "'What's this?' she laughed. Elder Johnson's eyes sparkled as he replied. "'Paybacks?' "'Yeah,' Elder Fleur added. "'Every single time you are playing in the park, we leave blessed and spiritually fed. Whenever we feel discouraged, we come to the park because your music sustains us and feeds our souls. You see, you have given us a great gift as well, not once but many times.' Having received plaudits all her life for her beauty, charm, and considerable talent, Melody was still not prepared for their reply. Her her eyes misted. She smiled happily and brushed a tear away with the back of her fingers. Thank you, she said very softly. Elder Johnson was about to say something else when he suddenly remembered. Oh, I almost forgot. We have your sister's address, he said happily and held out a copy of the Book of Mormon. What's this? She acted with mock suspicion. She had twice refused to take a Book of Mormon. Elder Johnson smiled slightly. Well, we wrote the address in the flyleaf. See? He said, holding up the book, there was an address and a telephone number. Her heart leaped and she reached for the book, but he pulled it back. I know this is blackmail, he said in all seriousness, but I want you to have this book because it's true, not because it's got your sister's address inside. I don't care if you believe it in it or not, I just want you to know that I want to give it to you. "'This book will eventually help you complete your life's journey. "'It will take you full circle. "'It is the most precious thing I possess, and I want you to have it.' "'So saying, he held out the book. "'Melody took the book in both hands, then shook her head in wonder. "'What are you saying?' Er, "'I'm not sure what... "'I mean, about this book taking me full circle,' she inquired, her eyes narrowing. "'Yes, I think I said that. Did that offend you?' "'Melody shook her head vigorously. "'Not at all. It's a common expression with Mormon missionaries.' Both elders looked at each other, then shook their heads. It was Elder Flora who said, I've never heard anyone say it before just now. Melody looked at the book, thumbed to her sister's address, then looked back at Elder Johnson. Why did you say that? Why? What does it will take you full circle mean, do you think? The young missionary shrugged. Honestly, Sister McAveney, I have no idea. I was just speaking from my heart, and the spirit was upon me, and I just said it. I'm sorry, but I can't give you an explanation. Other than that, it was the right thing to say. Melody stared at him in deep thought before replying, Elder Johnson, it was probably the only thing you could have said to make me accept this book, other than to just give me my sister's address. She closed the Book of Mormon and held it before her with both hands. Thank you, elders. I will not forget what you have said. I believe you when you say this book is precious. I couldn't have said that one a minute ago. Perhaps in time I will understand why... You said what you did. Until then, I will accept your words on faith. Her eyes focused on a far distant memory. I knew another young missionary in Africa named Elder Mahoy, one who used those very words in a blessing he gave me. I believe that blessing saved my life. Someday I hope to understand both his words and yours. Elder Flora's voice was husky. That's really great, Sister McIlvaney. Without knowing anything specific about your life, I can promise you in the name of Jesus Christ that this book is essential to your finding what you seek. I just know it with all my heart. His accent was heavy with an American drawl and it stumbled, strummed pleasant memories in her heart. Thank you, Elder. I believe it too. Now I just need to find out how. They escorted her directly to the payphone near the post office and she called the number they had written in the book. Her heart nearly stopped when she heard her sister's voice on the phone. Marsha, she cried. But before she could speak even one joyous word, she remembered that Marsha did not know. She had to swallow three times before she could make a sound come from her lips. Oh, Marcia, she wailed. Daddy is dead. The operation lasted three agonizing hours. While Dr. Green once again emerged through the double doors, her face was drawn and weary. Except for his faith, Sam would have collapsed in an agony of sorrow. As it was, the look on her face was enough to tear at his fragile hope. Tears sprang to his eyes, and a terrible foreboding gripped his soul. He felt his knees folding beneath him. The doctor grabbed both his shoulders and lowered him back down to the chair. Your faith has seen you thus far. Don't give up yet, she said cryptically. Princess has survived the operation. She shouldn't have. Three three times she nearly bled to death, and the three times we revived her. The second time we had no more blood. One of the nurses was her blood type, and gave blood right there in the operating room. Each time I was on the verge of giving up, but something more powerful than logic urged me on. In the end, I would have to say that regardless of the seriousness of the procedure we performed, there was never any chance of her not making it. Her God has quite obviously delivered her from the jaws of death. She will have a long recovery, but she will be fine. She continued warily, We don't know what the effect, the severe blood loss, will have on her. She may suffer some memory loss, perhaps slight personality shifts, though I doubt anything severe. You can relax, Mr. Mahoy. You are the proud recipient of three miracles. Sam slumped in his chair, his heart soaring in relief and silent prayers of thanksgiving. He didn't hear what else the doctor said until his father nudged him. What? What? Dr. Green was leaning forward, smiling. I said, two of your miracles are identical twin daughters. They are perfectly healthy. Sam was so amazed that his legs refused to support him further, and he dropped into his chair, stunned. When can I see them? He queried. Dr. Green frowned thoughtfully. Princess is still under anesthesia. The babies will be in isolation for at least 24 hours. I suggest you go home and get some rest. Your wife won't be seeing anyone for at least 12 hours. Go get some rest. Sam struggled to stand and stood uh, and shook the doctor's hand. Thank you very much for giving me back my wife and new babies. Dr. Green looked at him with some irony in her face. She merely nodded and turned away as if in a hurry to be elsewhere. Sam's family herded him to his car. His mind was in a fog of colliding thoughts and emotion. He would have happily gone home and slept for a small eternity, but was shocked to full awareness the instant he saw the driver's side window. Scratched deeply in the glass was a large twenty-two. Someone took him home and put him to bed. He slept for several hours in death-like exhaustion. But the implication of the hatred numerals on his car at the hospital so near his family terrified him. He hurried back to the hospital as soon as his mind and body could function. They named the girls Lisa Laura Mahoy, with her middle name after Sam's mother, and Bonnie Marie Mahoy, the middle name after Princess's mother. Princess came home ten days later. She was still too weak to care for the baby girls by herself. Sam's mother moved in with them to help. The babies thrived. Princess seemed barely to have the will to survive. She had to be urged to eat, urged to sit up, and urged to breathe, it seemed. She seemed to have little energy for her babies, though a look of love came on her face when she saw them. The first turning point toward recovery came when Grandmother Mahoy carried the twin girls to her, one in each arm. Princess was lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. Princess, I have in my arms two little angels who have loved you since before time began. They depend on you for life itself. You have to eat. If for no other reason... "'so that you can nurse them. "'You chose life for them. "'Now follow through on that commitment. "'You nursed them in the hospital, "'and they have thrived on your gift. "'But I refuse to feed these precious little ones cow's milk, "'not when they have milk of life to give to them.' Princess's face changed. She smiled weakly, and without a word, she struggled to sit up. Sam hurried to help her, but a warning look held him at back. She pushed herself to a sitting position. A look of pain on her face she held out her arms and took one of the babies the little one fumbled anxiously and with a little help began nursing noisily mother Mahoy propped a pillow under princess's elbow to support her arm which trembled from the weight of the baby the other little one soon found her meal on the other side and began drinking as daintily as her sister was noisy a smile formed on princess's lips as she looked from one tiny face to another an expression of love on her face Sam took a seat on the edge of the bed to watch this precious moment. In response, Princess shot him a withering glance. He stood as if shot by an arrow and left the room quietly. He went to his study and wept. He wept for happiness, sadness, joy, and tragedy. It was all more than he could endure. It was the first time Princess had ever looked at him with anything other than enduring love. Princess slowly recovered, each day a little stronger. It was almost as if the babies fed her even as she fed them. In time, she regained her health, and Mother Mahoy went home. But even after Dr. Green pronounced her physically well, Princess's former feelings of endearment for Sam seemed partly forgotten or lost, or perhaps discarded. That November, the ward was divided, and the Wasilla Second Ward was formed. Sam and Princess lived within the boundaries of the new ward, while his parents stayed in the former. His father remained bishop of the old ward, Sam was immediately called to be the Elder Scorn President in the new ward. He rejoined Joist in the opportunity to serve and pressed forward with determination. He and Bishop Dowling spent many evenings going from home to home using somewhat the same methods his own father had used for so many years to build the wards in Downey and in Wasilla. January of that year brought the worst winter storm ever recorded in the Matanuska Valley. On January 15th, the temperature dropped to 23 below zero, and deep snow fell. The odd thing was that it was too cold to snow. Usually, it will not snow when the temperature is below freezing. The snow was light and crystalline, almost glass-like, and it fell until several feet of fine powder lay on the ground, like so much glitter. Almost midnight on the next day, the wind began to blow. It whipped up until the winds exceeded 120 miles an hour, with gusts to 150. The big log home trembled as the winds hammered against it. The winds continued to pound the valley for nearly two weeks. Sam's new home was thick and sturdy, but it was also large and hard to heat without electricity. The power went out within the first hour of the windstorm. Sam bundled up and brought in wood to stoke the big stove in the living room. The heat seemed to rise to the ceiling, leaving the floor cold and drafty. He brought Princess and the babies into the room with the stove and hung blankets in the doorway and across the stairs. The room slowly became tolerable, but hardly comfortable. With no electricity, they were left in darkness, and Sam quickly found he was unprepared for such things. Having only lived there for a few months, he had yet to complete their food storage. They suddenly found themselves rationing things like matches, toilet paper, diapers, toothpaste, and drinking water. They had only a few candles and one kerosene lantern with one small bottle of fuel. The only thing that worked to their advantage was that their kitchen stove was propane and they had a full tank of fuel. Sam lit the oven and left the door open. He carefully monitored the level in the tank, which went down much quicker than he had liked. Princess seemed to accept the situation with a stoic sense of fate. She kept the babies wrapped against her body for warmth and cared for them as best she could. Sam melted snow for water and chopped wood. They ate everything in the house until all they had was wheat, beans, and canned goods of various unappetizing varieties. Sam ground the wheat to flour in a hand mill and cooked it as many different ways as he could. The toilets in the house were frozen solid, and he set up a privy in the corner of the big room separated by curtains. Many times a day he took the bucket outside and emptied it. The wind blew the powdery snow into great drifts as hard as concrete. One side of the house had a drift to the roof line. The drift grew around the house until the front door was blocked, then the windows. The only way to exit the house was through the garage doors. Every time he raised a garage door, it felt as if the wind would take away the whole garage. The structure wind and wind, <laughs> and the roof rattled from the strain. He decided it was no longer safe to open those big doors. Sam pried open the front door and shoveled a tunnel through the drift. After about ten feet, he He turned left and dug another six feet before breaking through. The opening faced away from the wind, and he could come and go without sending a gust of wind and snow into the house. Had he not had a sick wife and two six-month-old daughters, it might have almost been an adventure. Princess was getting sick of wheat and beans, and her milk was slowly dropping off for want of adequate drinking water. After two weeks, they were on the last 15% of the propane tank. Sam reluctantly shut it off as a source of heat. The winds died down to 40 miles per hour on February 1st. Sam knew they desperately needed supplies and dressed up in everything he could put on. It was nearly 30 below zero. With the wind chill, it was well over 100 below zero. Princess, I'm going to go tr- try to go into town today, he said, walking up behind her. He placed his hands on her shoulders and kneaded them gently. Sam, please be careful, but come back in when you decide when you're going to do, so I don't worry, okay? Of course. I'll just go see if the Jeep will start. Be careful, she urged. He made his way to the four-wheel drive jeep. He had unwisely parked it outside the night of the big blow. It was buried in three feet of rock-hard snow. He chipped open an area sufficient to open the driver's door. When he hit the starter, the engine would not turn over, but gave off a screaming sound. He raised the hood and found the engine compartment completely white. Only the air cleaner was above the snow. After warming himself by chopping some more wood, he returned with a screwdriver and chipped the snow out of the engine compartment. As soon as the fan was clear, the faithful old engine roared to life. The cabin immediately filled with exhaust. He shut it off and dug away the snow from the tailpipe. But this time, it was dark again, and he gave up. The next day, the wind was still blowing. He found the truck drifted back in. But this time, the snow that had blown in was powdery. Sam started the vehicle, observed that there was only a quarter tank of fuel, and shut it back off. With his snow shovel, he chipped a narrow path through the solid drift until he came to an area nearly free of snow. In the fickle nature of snow drifts, his transportation was buried nearly three feet deep. And a hundred feet away, the ground was bare. He chipped ice like snow for a whole day. It was just twilight when he started the jeep and drove it into, without trouble, onto Bear Road. In an Alaskan winter, twilight is around three in the afternoon. He went back inside to warm up. I've got the jeep on the road. I'm going to make a quick trip into town, he informed her, as he piled more wood by the stove. Is the road open? Can you make it into town? it has drifts but seems to be passable if i encounter anything too big i'll turn around and come back holding lisa in her arms princess walked to the door with him she was wearing levi's over pajamas with a warm bathrobe over all that she had one of his baseball caps on her head and looked like a refugee remember diapers and please be careful i will don't worry He brought with him a shovel, a candle, and a blanket. He drove a short distance down their lane before encountering another drift several feet deep blocking the road. He got out and walked across the drift. It was as hard as stone. Carefully, he drove up onto it. It easily supported the weight of the jeep. The other side was an abrupt drop-off of three feet. It had turned dark by the time he was able to dig a ramp off of it and drive onto solid ground. Turning left was the shortest way into town. In the headlights of the vehicle, he could see many small drifts, while the other directions seemed to have larger ones. Favouring the most direct route, he turned left. The first drift he came to was powdery. It dissipated in the wind as he drove through it. Each drift he came to was powdery and easy to get through, though the larger ones required some speed to blast through them. He was about 100 yards from the intersection with the main highway when he came to a massive wall of snow. He got out and inspected what looked like to be the side of a mountain. The drift was taller than the telephone poles and stretched stretched as far as he could see in either direction. It was simply impassable. Had he not been shivering in 100 below temperatures and desperate to get food for his family, he would have been amazed. As it was, he was disappointed to the point of explosive anger. He struggled to regain his emotional stability and climb back into his truck. He was nearly on an eighth of a tank. Under normal circumstances, it would be plenty to get him into town. Sam turned around and retraced his tracks, now blown nearly to non-existence in the wind. He passed their drive and felt an urging to return home. He wondered if it was the spirit or his own thinking, but shrugged it off. All he could think about was food for his family. The thought of Princess smiling at him as he carried in bags of groceries warmed him, and once again he drove past their drive. She hadn't smiled at him much at all since the babies were born, and he was willing to brave winds and storms or dragons if necessary to have the joy of it again. The road beyond their driveway was nearly bare. He could see the brown gravel underneath a layer of snow slithering across the road like a thousand white snakes driven by the winds. He came to the first big drift and eased the front of the jeep into it. It was soft, but too deep to drive through, and he got stuck. He easily backed out and got a short run at it. The snowdrift exploded into a white fury and vanished into the brisk wind. He drove through onto hard ground. The next drift was smaller and likewise vanished when he'd hit it. Drift after drift gave way to him until he thought little of finding another crossing the road. The biting cold was frosting his windshield, even with the defroster blowing full blast. He periodically scraped the inside. The fuel gauge continued its plunge toward E. Heavenly Father, I really need some help, he prayed out loud. Please, let me bring home food for my family. Five miles passed, with no major problems. His sense of success grew, and he thanked the Lord. The road turned right, and he had only one, had another mile to go until he came to the highway. He was certain he would have no problems on the highway. He had been listening to the radio. Power had been restored to the city of Osilla. The main roads were being maintained, and stores were open. Secondary roads would be open as soon as the winds died down. As these thoughts were going through his mind, he came to another drift. It was somewhat larger than the others and sloped on the side facing him. He stopped, pushed open the door. The wind slammed it back shut before he could get out. The wind had picked up considerably. The world of cold on the other side of the glass caused him to shiver. The jeep rocked as if it were buffeted by the wind. He suddenly felt very weary and decided not to brave the slamming cold to inspect the drift on foot. An urging inside warned him against it, which he ignored. He backed up the jeep and mentally judged what speed he would need to break through the drift. He decided on about 25 miles per hour. He He backed up a little farther and began forward. He carefully adjusted his speed until it was just under 25. The drift approached, and he steered toward the lowest part. He came onto the drift and waited for it to explode. Without warning, the jeep launched into the air. His head snapped forward, hitting the steering wheel with a, as the jeep took flight. He flew through the air for a dozen feet before landing with a jarring impact on the other side. Sam's head snapped back, and his neck screamed in pain. He slammed on the brakes and came to a stop. The engine was still running, but the jeep sat "'at an odd angle. "'He took inventory of himself and decided he was all right, "'though his face was bleeding slightly above his brow "'and his back and neck hurt. "'Refusing to give up, he shut off the jeep and climbed back out. "'Hours passed in a frantic scramble between bone-numbing digging "'and partly warming himself in the jeep. "'He lost track of time outside. "'The wind pierced through him like nails shot from a gun. "'He did not dare run the truck long enough "'to warm himself completely.' The wind was stronger now, and the path filled in as fast as he could dig. Despair slowly settled over him. Sam returned to the jeep. He had been working in the headlights without the motor running, and for a frightening moment it seemed as if the faithful jeep would not start. At the last possible moment the engine barked to life, and he slapped himself to keep warm until heat came from the jeep. He knew he could push himself no further, and steely steely fear swept over him. He turned on the headlights and saw that the digging he had just done had blown back in. He laughed aloud with dark humor, then laid his head back. Something sharp snapped in his neck, and he shouted in pain. For the first time, he realized he was seriously injured. Cold sweat beaded on his forehead as he slowly went into shock. Faced with his own mortality for the first time in his life, Sam was startled to find that his greatest regret was regarding Princess. He did not want to die without having restored her love to his life. He pondered what the twins might become without him, but knew that they would be cared for and loved. He pondered every aspect of his life and found himself surprisingly in good repair. The only loose end he truly regretted was the inexplicable loss of Princess's love. This loss, he decided, was greater than the apparently imminent loss of his own life. As only the howling of the storm disturbed the quiet of the cold vehicle, his heart soared in prayer. No sooner had he begun to pray than the Holy Spirit swept over him, and he felt peace tears filled his eyes as he poured out his soul in prayer, not begging for physical salvation, but in words of love and worship. Without asking, without begging, and no more than a feeling of peace, he knew all would be well. He turned off the headlights and let darkness surround him. The engine coughed and died. He did not try to restart it. Instead, he turned off the key. The blower quickly became cold, and he turned it off as well. Cold invaded the cabin immediately. He listened to the wind and estimated it was almost up to a 100 again. He tucked his hands under his arms and prayed as feeling first left his toes, then his feet, then his legs. He knew he was dying, and yet fear was not the emotion he felt. It was joy. Joy that soon he would have the privilege of worshipping at the Savior's feet. At first, he benumbed, his benumbed mind thought that it was a rumble of an earthquake. He felt it in his pants before he heard it. He decided it was an avalanche, yet he was nowhere near a mountainside or hillside. He opened his eyes to see what appeared to be a hurricane coming directly toward him. The hurricane had two blinding lights above it, on either side of it. His mind struggled to comprehend, to understand what it might be. It roared even louder than the wind and screamed as it sent snow and ice furiously in every direction. He decided his mind was playing tricks on him and nearly closed his eyes as he felt a surge of warmth and a clear command. Turn on the lights, it said. He reached out, fumbled without feeling for the light button. It stuck to his fingers as he pulled it on. The headlights of the jeep flared into the night and the hurricane stopped with a lurch just in front of his jeep. Sam watched with stupid interest as the hurricane paused, then grew silent. As he watched, it died away and magically became a gaping mouth of a giant beast of a huge yellow teeth slowly turning in his headlights. He simply stared at it in dumb fascination. A hand rubbed away the frost from the side of the window. A face appeared and quickly vanished. He heard voices and heard a shovel banging against his door. In a few moments, his door was yanked open, and Sam was swallowed by the wind. He felt irritated that whoever it was had opened the door and let in the wind. Someone grabbed his arm and yanked him out into the storm. He would have resisted, but he was too cold. Hands fumbled all over him, and he was lifted. It seemed like his feet were directly over his head, and snow blew in his pant leg. It was an odd sensation. The next Sam knew he was upright again and being pushed up a ladder. He tried to help and managed to climb. In a short while, he was sitting in a large cabin with hot, blowing air in his face. Someone shoved a cup against his lips, and he swallowed a gulp of burning liquid. It tasted awful, and he wondered if they were trying to kill him. But the heat hit the stomach and flared outward. It felt so good to take another swallow of the foul liquid. It burned his mouth and throat, but the warmth was magical. Someone was talking on the radio, reporting something about a buried jeep. Someone else asked his name, and he tried to remember it. He took another swallow, and almost as if a light switch had been snapped on, he remembered With sudden panic, he became fully aware and couldn't help himself from yelling. Hey, you're okay. Here, take another swallow of coffee. Sam looked into the concerned face of a young man. He was wearing a military uniform. Sam looked around himself and decided that he was in the cab of a big machine. From the fact that everything was drab green, it was a military machine. He took another swallow of the hot liquid before it registered that it was coffee. He handed back the cup and nodded his thanks. Judas Priest, we almost ground you up to pieces, the older man said as he soon hung the radio microphone back up. You okay? I think so. Where am I? What is this? It's one of the National Guard's biggest snowblowers. We've been working for weeks to open up the back roads. We didn't see your truck until you turned on the lights. Another two feet, and we would have ground you into shrapnel, he said, with deep concern in his voice. Sam leaned forward and couldn't even see the top of the jeep over the big blower. The huge blower was a mere two feet from the front of the truck. Its vicious mouth was ten feet wide and capable of chewing up an automobile without much more than a cough. Sam shivered inwardly and sent a prayer of thanks for the urging to turn on the lights. Sam noticed that both men were sweating. They had turned the heaters in the cabin up full blast to thaw him out. Mr. Mahoy, we need to take you to the hospital, the senior of the two insisted. Sam shook his head. I'm feeling much better, thanks to you. My family is out of food and I need to get back. I can't force you to go, the man said, but I think it unwise to not treat your injuries immediately. I can see that your neck hurts. I'll be fine, I promise. I'll get medical attention as soon as possible. It's your call, Mr. Mahoy. I'm just so darn glad we didn't... he shook his head. In about an hour, Sam recovered enough to climb back, back out of the big machine. He was amazed to see how his jeep was dwarfed by the big Machine a mere twenty-four inches from his bumper, they backed up and tied a chain to his truck. The little jeep hopped effortlessly onto smooth ground. They gave him a spare can of gas. You'd be surprised how many stranded motorists we have dragged out of snowdrifts. We were ordered to carry an extra uh, gas, courtesy of the U.S. government. That needle read half a tank when it climbed back. When he climbed back in, he started the engine and waited until heat once again came from the blower. He could feel everything but his feet, which he was able to move stiffly, so they weren't frozen, just very cold. The soldiers backed the big machine out of his way. The road was flat and smooth before him. Nearly four hours after his engine had died, he was once again able to continue his journey. He happened to glance in his rearview mirror just as the big snowblower roared back to life, belching a column of snow and ice into the air. The drift that had thrown him into the sky vaporized into the night. A few minutes later, Sam pulled up to the brightly lit grocery store. He purchased many bags of food, milk, paper, diapers, candles, kerosene, another lamp, matches, toilet paper. He resisted the urge to buy the whole store. The poor little Jeep was sitting so low to the ground that the wheels almost rubbed the wheel wells. In the bright lights of the parking lot, he inspected the damage. Three of the springs were broken, the fourth hopelessly bent. He got out the bumper, jack and jacked it up. He had several pieces of 2x4, which he had laid between the frame and the axle. He found some baling wire and tied them in place. He had to stop twice to put the blocks back in place. He finally arrived home about 10 o'clock at night. He had left around 3. His labors to dig out of the driveway were wasted. It had all blown back in, and he had to park by the road. He walked the long lane to his home, carrying his treasure's. Princess was waiting for him and threw open the door. Her face was a picture of relief. She took the packages from him, and he returned to the jeep for the remainder. When Sam finally arrived with the final load, he was nearly as cold as when the National Guard had rescued him. His speech was slurred, and he was having difficulty concentrating. The wind had resumed its former ferocity. Princess sat him by the stove and pulled off his gloves and boots. She massaged his feet and wrapped them in towels warmed on the stove. She worked on him for nearly an hour before he began to feel warm again, and his shivering stopped. Thank you, Princess. I'm okay now, I think he said, his speech nearly normal. Oh, Sam, I was so worried. I was afraid you had gotten into trouble. The babies and I said many prayers for you, she said earnestly. I did, actually. I got stuck and ran out of gas and nearly froze. Oh, no, Sam, I was afraid something had happened. How did you get out? The National Guard came along. Truly? She asked in disbelief. "'They did. They were clearing the roads and pulled the jeep out of the drift. "'I broke all four springs hitting the snowdrift. I thought I was a goner.' "'He left out the part about almost being ground a hamburger by their snowblower. "'I'm so grateful you're okay. Thanks for worrying about me and for warming me back up. "'It felt wonderful to have you care about me again.' "'Princess looked at him with a blank expression before turning away. "'What did you bring us?' she asked, in an obvious effort to change the subject." Princess made regular visits to Dr. Green with the babies, and they seemed to be thriving. Sam decided to contact the doctor herself. Princess said very little about her appointments, and Sam was concerned. Even though she was much better physically, there was a vast change in her personality. Dr. Green invited him to come and talk about his fears. Dr. Green's office was near the hospital. Sam arrived after four hours and had to wait nearly an hour for the last patient to leave. The waiting room was decorated like a nursery obviously, for the comfort of expecting mothers. He could hardly believe this was the office of an abortionist, but that wasn't why he was. what he was here to discuss. The doctor shook his hand and ushered him into a large office. Her office was all business and had none of the feminine trappings of the outer rooms. He felt as if he had entered in a lawyer's office. Dr. Green took a seat behind a big walnut desk and came directly to the point. Mr. Behoy, I... Understand that you have concerns about your wife's health. How may I help? Sam cleared his throat and nodded. It's not her physical health I'm concerned about. She seems to have had a personality change. She no longer seems to care about the things she formerly loved. He wanted to say people, but felt more comfortable saying it this way. I see. Has this all happened since the babies were born? Yes, it's been sudden and dramatic. Hmm. Does she treat you differently? Very much so. The doctor frowned and leaned forward, steepling her hands on her desk. I see. Let me make a couple of observations. First, pregnancy and birth require tremendous physiological changes in a female's body. Hormone changes, body chemistry changes, her diet, routine, all change. In addition to this, there was a tremendous emotional burden associated with giving birth. Sometimes, there is a deep depression that lingers for several months following delivery. In the vast majority of cases, these things wear off in a few months and the mother returns to normal. I know about those things, Sam interjected. She was wonderful during the pregnancy and seemed anxious for the babies to come. The changes have all been since the birth. It's been several months now. She just isn't the same person, Sam felt as if he were whining and had to struggle to keep tears from his eyes. Yes, I see, she said. During the operation, your wife lost a lot of blood. Several times her heart stopped and she had to be revived. These times were brief, but it's entirely possible that she suffered some minor brain impairment. In almost all cases related to blood loss, the impairment shows up first in small personality changes. In severe cases, there is a loss of motor skills or memory. She doesn't exhibit memory loss, does she? Not that I can tell, but she hardly talks to me anymore. I'm going to recommend that you take Princess to a specialist, Dr. Spennard. He's not a psychologist, but a doctor who deals specifically with long-term illness of this type. His methods are unusual and even controversial, but are highly effective. I don't know if anything can be done to help Princess regain her former personality, but he may be able to help. With this, she jotted a name and a number on a prescription pad. Sam took the slip and stood. He was about to leave when a thought occurred to him. Doctor, I want to thank you for saving Princess and my babies. I know it was a traumatic affair for you. Anyway, thank you very much. The doctor seemed to struggle with indecision before she motioned him back into his chair. Sam sat down uncomfortably. In all candor, Mr. Mahoy, your wife's behavior has troubled me deeply. What she did was either very brave or incredibly stupid. I haven't decided which. She was willing to die rather than let me save her. She shook her head and appeared to be viewing the scene again in her mind. After a moment, she continued, When I went to medical school, they taught us repeatedly that a fetus was only tissue that there was no more life in it than in your finger or foot. Because of my training, I have had no qualms about performing abortions and have done so many times. I don't especially enjoy doing it and especially and usually send new patients requesting an abortion to another doctor. But when an established patient requests it, I have obliged them. As you know, there has been a great uproar in recent years about abortions. There are many people who want to make it illegal. I made... It made me angry that some group of people wants to shove their moral system down my throat and tell me what I can or can't do. As a result, I have performed more abortions in the last two years than I would have otherwise, perhaps as many as three times more. However, I have never been so unhappy in my life. It seems to me as if every time I returned from a procedure of this type, I felt more and more unable to care about the mothers and their babies who wanted to live, wanted a live birth. I began to view them as carrying unliving tissue inside of them, and I felt indifferent toward their babies, whom they loved deeply. I have lost some patience because of my attitude. She sighed, then went on as if telling the story for the first time. It had come to the point that I had almost decided to go into abortion practice exclusively. There is certainly more money in it, and less risk of lawsuits. There is much demand, and many reasons to do such a thing. As a matter of fact, I had decided in favor of dropping my obstetric practice the very day I was called in to work with Princess. The reason I'm telling you all of this is so that you will understand my circumstances prior to meeting your wife. Sure, was all Sam could think to say. I felt both relieved and deeply troubled by my decision. I reasoned that in 10 years I could retire wealthy from my abortion practice. I would take It would take twice that long to achieve the same end with my regular practice. Yet when I realized Princess was willing to die, Rather than to let me operate on her, I was stung. I was struck with such deep self loathing that I could barely function. I know I displayed it as anger toward Princess, but it was really anger towards myself. I wanted her to recant and let me help her. There was a long pause. Dr. Green looked at her hands, which she laid flat on the desk. She was right, you know. If I would have performed that operation on her, I would have felt vindicated. My skills saved precious lives and eliminated unwanted tissue in the same noble stroke. What she did was force me to reevaluate my own mortality. Morality. She forced me to look deep enough into my soul to see that I did not like what was there. Sam cleared his throat nervously. He wasn't sure why she was telling him all this. So he asked, Can you share what your decision was? It wasn't a decision, she declared. Princess said that I had to make a deal with God. The first time I came back, I had decided to reevaluate my position. Princess would not accept that. Even not knowing what my decision was, she would not accept it. When I went away a second time, I realized if I was not sincere in my negotiations with God, if it was not 100% right, Princess and her babies were going to die. The thought of my trading their lives for my financial gain was so bitter in my mind, that I literally felt ill. The doctor stood and walked to the window so that her back was to Sam. She stared at the window at the towering mountains just beyond. When she finally spoke, her voice was subdued. When I returned to the second time I had made a deal with God, I told him that if he would let me save Princess's life and her babies, I would keep my obstetric practice and not switch to abortion work. Just in case that wasn't enough, I also promised to only perform an abortion in limited cases where the mother's life was at stake. Any others, I would send to another doctor. When I returned to Princess's bedside, I knew it would be enough. I was not even surprised when she nodded. I wasn't sure we had not waited too long, though. It was a frightening and confusing event, Sam confided. I'm extremely grateful you were able to come to a decision that allowed you to save her. It makes my gratitude double significantly. The doctor walked around the desk. Sam stood and accepted her hand. So am I, she said softly. There was a brief hesitation before, she added. I am very grateful to Princess Sam. Please tell her that. Tell her that once again. I like what I see in the mirror. Sam had dubious feelings as he escorted Princess to the door of Dr. Spinner's office. It was small and somewhat shabby compared to Dr. Green's. It was obvious he cared much less for the fine trappings and acquiring wealth. Princess blushed when, he, when she shook his hand. He was in his thirties, medium height, dark haired. He had a thin mustache and bright blue eyes. His speech was animated and upbeat. He seemed larger than life. Even Sam thought he was good looking and was impressed with his optimistic appraisal of his wife's condition. After a thorough exam, which Sam attended, the doctor proposed a form of oxygen therapy which involved removing quantities of her blood, infusing it with oxygen, and injecting it back into her. He recommended that treatment three times a week. Dr. Spenard sat on a small stool and faced Sam directly. I've never tried this therapy in a case such as this, but I'm optimistic Princess will benefit from it. Sam nodded and took Princess's hand. It stands to reason that if oxygen deprivation has caused minor brain damage, then oxygen enrichment may reverse it. He told them confidently, I suggest we try it. It is somewhat expensive. Sam nodded. That's not a problem. In addition, the doctor prescribed an extensive diet change and megavitamin therapy, along with long exposure to sunlight and moderate exercise. They left his office feeling hopeful. On the way home, Princess unexpectedly began to cry. Sam, she said, after she regained her composure, I know I've changed since the babies were born. I don't know why. I just don't feel the same. I'm so sorry. I really miss the wonderful feelings we had before. I desperately want them back. Will you forgive me and be patient with me? Sam fought back strong emotions. It was the first time she had acknowledged anything amiss. Princess, I will always love you, no matter what. I will wait as long as it takes, he said with a lump in his throat. She smiled at him almost the way she used to. It warmed his soul. Princess returned from her first treatment animated and happy. She laughed and seemed enthusiastic for the first time in months. She described her session with the doctor in glowing terms. Princess continued her treatments every other day, and Sam returned to work. The business had been running without him for months. He returned to find things badly needing his attention. He had left affairs pretty much in the hands of a salesman and a bookkeeper. He threw himself into his work with passion, feeling optimistic about everything for the first time in months. In a short time, sales surged as the word spread about the, whole, about the great deals he was offering. In reality, it was the first time a sub-wholesaler had done business in Alaska, and the market responded with near greed to the lower prices. In a short time, the opportunity came to expand into Washington and Oregon. Sam flew down a couple of weeks to investigate. He returned, having signed a contract with several diamond wholesalers, potentially worth millions. Princess continued with her treatments faithfully. After each treatment, she felt stronger and upbeat, but the effect wore off before the next treatment. She was afraid to stop taking them. On the day Sam returned home, she came home from the treatment depressed. Dr. Spenard says I'm not responding to the treatments. The effect appears to be temporary. He wants to try something else. Sam swore loudly. He had truly hoped it would help. Princess's eyes opened wide in shock. I'm sorry, he added contritely. I just wanted this to work. What does he suggest? Princess dropped her purse on the couch and took Bonnie from Sam's arms. Well, he thinks I may have chronic blood infection called Epstein-Barr virus. And I've heard about it before. It drains a person's energy and causes depression. I've never heard of it, Sam admitted. Why would you get a virus during an operation? Is there a cure? Well, there's really no cure. There is a treatment. It involves a low-stress lifestyle. Absolutely no sugar and very little red meat. There is also some medicine you take with it. No sugar? Sam asked, a bit alarmed. He was particularly fond of sweets, as was Princess. None whatsoever, he says. Gosh, what do you want to do? There's one other thing I haven't mentioned. What's that? Sam wondered. From her voice, he could tell she was reluctant to tell him. The no-stress part. Yeah? Well, he runs a retreat. It's somewhere near Fairbanks. Every couple of months, he takes a few patients up there for a month to six weeks. He describes it as a health spa, of sorts. He said you relax, have lots of massages, eat raw, fresh food, have laugh therapy, play games, and take lots of natural medicine. It actually sounds fun, Sam admitted, although the thought of her leaving for a month sent panic through him. I'm reluctant to leave the twins, Princess said with sadness. It pained him that she wasn't reluctant to leave him. And to leave you that long, she added, as if she had to read his mind. He smiled at her and patted her cheek. They sat at their favorite spot on the big sofa near the grand piano. The babies were still asleep upstairs. Dr. Spenard says I would have to wean them. He says they haven't nursed long enough. He suggests doing it several weeks before the retreat, so I'll be comfortable again. He really wants me to go and thinks he can cure me completely in that length of time. She sounded very hopeful. Sam struggled with all this. It sounded both good and potentially bad. He didn't know Dr. Spenard any more than from one brief visit. He liked him but wasn't really ready to trust his princess on a near two-month trip to some isolated location. How many other people will be there, Sam asked, forcing concern from his voice. Rob says about a dozen will be there, all female. No men at the retreat except him, of course. He'll only be there at the beginning to get it started and the last two weeks to finish up. He may come up once in between. Rob, he asked suspiciously. You knew his name is Dr. Robert Spinner, didn't you? He prefers to be called Rob to doctor. Most of his patients call him Dr. Rob. Dr. Rob? Sam said, as if trying it on for size. He didn't like it. What do you want to do? he asked, hoping she would express doubt or reservations. I want to go, she said simply. Grandma Mahoy can handle the twins and would love it. The girls will be fine. You can manage, and when I return, maybe things will be as they were before. It was apparent to Sam that Princess had thought this all through. Even that concerned him. Will you call, or does he keep you incommunicado? That's another thing. No calls except for emergencies. He wants us to forget about the real world and just relax. He is optimistic that it will have a dramatic effect upon me. I really want to try. I need a break, and this could be the answer to my prayers. Please say it's okay. Please. Princess, you don't need my permission to go. You're not my daughter. "'If you feel it's that important, I'll support you in it. "'I just want you to understand that I don't like it.' "'Oh? Why? "'I don't have a good feeling about it, that's all. "'Do you know why?' "'It has something to do with you spending six weeks with a strange man "'in a paradise of back massages and laugh therapy. "'Maybe I'm just skeptical.' "'Or jealous?' "'Should I be jealous?' Sam asked, unable to keep his suspicion from his voice. "'Certainly not,' she replied heatedly. "'Rob is my doctor, nothing more.' "'If you think so lowly of me, maybe you're the one who needs some help. "'Have I ever given you a reason to doubt my loyalty?' "'No,' Sam replied truthfully but humbly. "'Have I ever disappointed you?' "'No,' he answered, after a millisecond's delay. "'Even that tiny hesitation was enough to infuriate her. "'Oh!' she cried, stood and stormed out of the room. "'It was the first time she had blown up at him ever. "'She had been angry at him before, but never over something so small. "'He sat on the couch in stunned silence.' Princess came home with a stack of baby bottles and formula the following day. From that moment on, she was determined to go. Nothing he could have said would have deterred her. Sam took Princess to the airport May 12th. Dr. Spender was there with three other patients and two nurses, all female. They were meeting others in Fairbanks, he said. Sam waited with a sinking heart until the plane was airborne. He did not like it, not at all. Princess had said goodbye happily and kissed him on the cheek. She was far too cheerful at leaving for a six-week separation, far too cheerful for his comfort. Time dragged by painfully. Sam spent his days busy with business, which was thriving. Every week he sent enormous amounts of money to their accounts overseas. Grandma tended the girls and was in heaven of her own. Soon the big house became too empty for him. He slept at his parents'. Benjamin was gone on a mission by now, and there was an extra room. "'Sam settled in and restlessly awaited Princess's return. "'He could find no joy in the waiting, "'and every day ground by in anguish. "'He became so grumpy that his mother told him "'to lighten up or go back home. "'Sam apologized and tried to cheer up. "'Whatever good humor he displayed was purely superficial. "'The only time he felt peace was in doing Elder Scorn's work. "'He spent many evenings out until late "'doing the only thing that brought him comfort.' After a whole month of waiting, he received a letter in the mail. It was addressed in Princess's flowery script. He tore it open with haste. The note was written on a single sheet of paper. Dear Sam, how are you and the girls? I am doing much better and have decided to continue for the full six weeks. That way I can have the benefit of working with Dr. Rob the last two weeks. The rest and treatment have been very good for me. Thank you for supporting me in this. Kiss Lisa and Bonnie for me. I'll be home soon. Love, Princess. Even though the message was a beat, Sam read it like a funeral program. He threw it on the sofa and stormed out of the house. Like a drum beating, an unending cadence in his mind, he kept hearing, Dr. Rob, Dr. Rob, Dr. Rob. Princess walked off the plane, side by side with Dr. Rob chatting happily. She smiled and waved at Sam as soon as she spotted him. She said something to Rob, smiled "'affectionately at her doctor, then turned her attention to Sam. "'She was cheery faced and bright. "'As happy as she seemed, there was something unusual about her. "'Her face was deeply tanned, but that wasn't it. "'As he hugged her, Sam came to the startling conclusion "'that there was no light in her face. "'He hoped that this was just from not attending church "'for six weeks and nothing more. "'Princess talked enthusiastically all the way home "'about the retreat and her progress. "'She spoke in glowing, almost reverent terms "'about Dr. Rob and how he had worked with her endlessly to get her going again she kept repeating how he had pulled her through in an almost miraculous way she pulled open her blouse to show him her tan light therapy she said happily and laughed they gathered up the girls and princess cooed and snuggled them she seemed so happy to hold them again grandma mahoi handed them back soberly sam already knew she was dreading giving them back he suspected there would be some tears as soon as they left Once home, Princess played with her babies for hours until they were exhausted. She fed them slowly and bathed them with great care. Sam offered repeatedly to help, but Princess kindly refused. She was starved for their love, and she wanted to soak them up as much as she could. When they were finally put to bed, Princess disappeared into their room. Sam fought the urge to follow her and instead sat down at the piano. The keys felt like old friends, warm and willing. He ran his fingers across the keys until the familiar unity came, and the music poured from his soul. For a time he was lost in the joy of the music, and the sadness of the burden upon his soul. The music flowed from the piano in surging waves, at times thunderous and complex, at others longing and sad. He played with his eyes closed, thinking of nothing else. At long last the music came to its own conclusion, and he lowered his hands into his lap. "'I have scarcely ever heard you play with more feeling,' Princess said from nearby." He had been unaware of her presence and opened his eyes to see her sitting on the big sofa. She had on her soft blue robe. She came and sat beside him on the piano bench and laid her head on his chest. It was something she had not done in a long time and thought it pleased him. It also caused him to wonder. They were still in one another's arms when the babies awoke crying at six in the morning. Princess winked at him, kissed him softly, and slid from the bed. She had never winked at him before. The only other person she could remember who winked at people was Dr. Rob. It made his heart sink. Sam stayed at home all the day to be with his little family. It was evening and the babies were already sleeping when Princess came down the stairs. She joined him in their favorite spot beside the piano. Instead of struggling up next to him as he expected, she sat with some space separating them. Is anything wrong? he asked, not really believing anything could be wrong after last night. Yes and no, she answered somewhat vaguely. Sam put down the scriptures he was reading and turned to face her. "'What's going on, princess? Before you left, you didn't want anything to do with me, and after your return, you climb all over me like it might be our last,' his voice trailed off. As soon as he said it, thunder struck inside his head. "'There's something I want to talk to you about,' she replied. "'Something has changed inside me. I don't know why, but it has. I don't know if it's from brain damage from the operation or just the way it is. At any rate, I'm different.' Sam felt his pulse quicken, his heart pounding in his throat. Different? In what way? You seem so happy to be home. I am. I'm happy because I've made some decisions that were really hard, but I had to make. Now that I've made them, I finally feel at peace. That's good, he said with a smile, though it didn't feel good. Yes, it is, but you may not think so. Why? What's wrong? You're killing me with a suspense here. Whatever it is, we can work through it. I love you, remember? Love can conquer any obstacle. Two-way love can she replied, placing a hand on his knee. "'One-way love is not healing. It's entrapping.' "'Princess, you're scaring me. Get to the point!' She smiled sadly. "'Sam, this is hard for me, too. "'What I'm trying to say is that I'm not in love with you anymore.' "'What?' Sam stammered. He felt strangled, as if an iron had gripped his heart. "'I do love you, you see, but I'm not in love with you. "'I thought I was, but I found that I'm not.' It would be unfair of me to keep you trapped in a relationship with someone who doesn't love you. Sam, I don't think I ever really loved you. I think I idealized you as a missionary and wanted to be like you and to have faith and determination. I just don't think that I was ever really love. I'm sorry if it's taken me this long. Oh, no. I'm sorry it has taken me this long to realize it. Princess, I can't believe this. I have seen such love in your eyes. I know you love me, or at least you did. How can you say this? It's not right. It's not true. It's not... He couldn't think of anything else to say. The princess averted her eyes and continued. I know this is hard to accept. It was for me too, but the truth is that we will be happier apart. You will still be around for the girls, and they will love you just the same. It's just that I can't live with you now that I... She didn't finish. Now that you love Dr. Rob, Sam finished... For her, with sarcasm in his voice. Even if that were true, it would be beside the point, she said. The important thing is, isn't whether I love someone else, but that I no longer love you. You said you never loved me, and now you said that you used to? Which is it? Well, I suppose I used to, but not now. You said you do love me, but you don't love me. Which is it, he demanded hotly. You're missing the point. Why did we have... Such a wonderful light last <laughs> night last night, if you don't love me. I felt I owed you that. I wanted you to feel the passion I felt. With him? Well, yes, she admitted. If you want me to be frank about it, yes. And did that passion express itself in the same? That's none of your business. Of course it's my business. I'm your husband, for heaven's sake. Not for much longer, she said hotly. But when she saw the slain look on his face, she instantly regretted it. She lowered her hand and head and began to cry. Sam began to cry too, and for a long time the only sound in the house was that of sobbing. Finally, Princess lifted her head and dried her tears. "'I'm sorry,' she said. "'I didn't want this to get ugly.' "'It got ugly when you betrayed our vows,' Sam said without looking up. "'I don't see it that way. I would never do that with someone I didn't love. But anyway, whether I did or not isn't the issue. The important thing is love, or the absence of it,' she declared." Princess stood and left the room. When she returned, she had on her jacket. I'll be back tomorrow to get the girls. They'll be living with me. If you need to talk to me, you can, and you can be rational, I'll be at Dr. Rob's home. His number is in the Anchorage Dictionary. She turned toward the door. I love you, Princess, Sam said as she pulled it open. She stopped and turned toward him. I know you do, she said and left into the night. Less than 15 minutes later, the phone rang. Sam let it ring a long time while he tried to compose his emotions. When it didn't stop, he picked it up.